I'm not the innovation, the disruption. I'm a messenger. This stuff is happening. And if you banks don't want to be turned into like dumb vaults, so either you take a chill pill and embrace the disruption and start to do it yourself, or it's just a matter of time before you're going to be on the wrong side of this equation and you're going to get turned into a dumb pipe. Imagine you're the CEO of Global ID, a digital identity verification platform. Throughout your career, you've been tried and tested in the tech industry, from the bustling streets of bike messenger services to the high stakes world of Silicon Valley. You've rubbed shoulders with industry giants, mentored future tech moguls, and even had a stint at the Federal Reserve. It just depends on how you look at risk. And you could say that's just FOMA, but if the person you're talking to really is sharing what is not just an idea, but really an insight about how the world could be different, it's kind of difficult to not take a swing at that pitch. I don't know, you can be wrong a hundred times, but when you're dealing with thousand to one returns on successes, you're gonna write a lot of checks. Your journey has been anything but ordinary. As you stand at the helm of Global ID, you find yourself at the crossroads of innovation and tradition, decentralization and centralization. Like Steve Jobs is like, well, computers could be for people instead of companies. Each of those are insights that if they're true, everything changes because the rules of the game are just gonna be different. And that's way beyond an idea. And that insight often comes from the gut. It's just a feeling that the world could be very different. And it's not an intellectual type thing. It's more of a temperament. But what happens when you're faced with the daunting task of deciding between a top-down centralized approach and a bottom-up decentralized one? In a world of tech, where talent is as diverse as it is dynamic, how do you spot and invest in individuals who can transform not just your company, but the world? And in an industry that's constantly evolving, how do you navigate the complex labyrinth of regulations and compliance? This is the story of Greg Kidd, a man who has not only faced these challenges, but continues to navigate them as the CEO of Global ID. And this is the verification. Greg, you have a really interesting background of being involved in, I think at this point, we could probably say hundreds of startups in some fashion or form in various parts of your career. But it all kind of starts with Dispatch Management Services, which is a company that you founded that eventually was taken public on NASDAQ. It deals with bike messengers and courier services. And take us through that experience to start and how that actually leads you to lots of other really important areas for the next couple decades that will influence other parts of technology and companies. Bike messengers used to be all top-down dispatching people telling the bikes what to do. But there were a few messenger companies in the world that did it bottom up. They just ran an auction and the messengers ruled the roost. And so the question was, what would it take to build software around bottom up decision making? Essentially a decentralized marketplace, much like Web3 today. And so that was happening all the way back in the 1990s. Jack Dorsey was a young kid. He got interested. He kind of hacked in, came to work for the company. He was also interested in text messaging and payments. And while we took that company public, that's all ancient history. What Jack then did for Twitter and Square, both of which I was just around a little bit at the beginning, kind of was the start of a whole nother set of generalizing the concepts, democratization of who could receive a message and democratization of who could take a payment 
and just democratization all the way through to the kind of innovations we're seeing in crypto now. Um, and that's what really changed the course of my life. I did spend time also in regulation working at the Fed. And uh, so that mix of a regulator's view plus the Silicon Valley view has made a for, for interesting sailing. Early on, this is an interesting company in the 90s because essentially this is looking at an early form of like an Uber or something like that, where you're going to have this distributed services that are aggregated in some way to be more useful. So that's one. Two, it's interesting because you acquired 64 different messenger companies to put them in the system. And of course, it's also interesting as a precursor to the text messaging that has to occur that is eventually turns into Twitter, which of course is in the news a ton now because of Elon Musk's recent acquisition. But then also payments because of the way that payments play a role in this too. So talk about those early days of that company, how Jack Dorsey comes on board and why this becomes actually a foundational experience for a lot of other stuff that's going to transform how we think about technology and the future of startups. Well, the, the key thing, the key unlearned lesson of messaging was you could build this big computer algorithm that figured out who should do what. Or you could simply turn it around and let the people on the road, the inmates run the asylum and just keep score. And so that's a time-honored debate. And look, I come from the operations research crowd where it's all AI and intelligence. The question is, when does the marketplace beat top-down decision-making, whether by a giant robot or by a giant autocrat? And in the messenger world, we learned that just making a market for the transactions, letting everyone communicate and work it out as a marketplace was superior to any type of AI kind of algorithm. And so it's kind of the markets versus the bots. And sometimes the markets win. And so I think Jack was heavily influenced by that. I certainly was. And so Twitter was, instead of having publishers determine what should be published, just anybody can get a Twitter account and become a publisher. Instead of big banks or big organizations determining who could take a payment, Square just opened that up to everyone. And so if you run the world bottom up, you get different outcomes if you run the world top down. And so, you know, crypto has been bottom up, web 3.0 is bottom up. And, you know, we're just believers, not because like I was taught that way. I came from the top down world of like management consulting firms, the Ivy League institutions, big government working for the Fed. But, you know, my experience has just been that like bottom up does pretty well. You don't have to ask permission to innovate. That's the game plan. It has this democratic view of whether it's messaging or payments or coordination of a marketplace that has this more democratic viewpoint. And in your career, you took that company public, you went on NASDAQ, you did well with the company, and you have this association now with someone who becomes an important player in Silicon Valley, Jack Dorsey, goes on to found Twitter and Square, and you also then become an investor in Twitter and Square, correct? And you're one of the kind of the early investors in that, which leads to a career in investing. Well, that was back then, and then came the Web 2.0 companies in crypto, the Ripples, the Coinbase so was in early for those. And then starting the Web 3.0, like the Protocol Labs, and, and then finally the new Layer 1 protocols, like the Solanas of the world, staking companies, now the Metaverse companies, all that has just flowed forth. It's kind of a Forrest Gump strategy. If you're just around, you know, there's been a criticism that Web 3.0 is the same people as Web 2.0, and I'm guilty as advertised. Yeah, I was around for Web 2.0, and that was a thing, but like 10 years ago. And so now can't help but to be investing in, in Web 3.0, even if it is crypto winter. We're always investing smaller checks, fewer of them during the winter, but uh, it's not always springtime. 
over your career, started out with Jack Dorsey hacking into Dispatch because he was curious and then ends up living with him as roommates and working on things together. But then you've had others in your career too, where you've been very early. And so one, do you just have a knack for spotting talent? Are you just good at choosing roommates? Another one, Brian Armstrong, you know, founder of Coinbase, another very successful kind of crypto company that grew really, really fast. You've known all these people, you've invested in them. How do you sort of spot talent and what's different about the folks that end up doing something that's, you know, not just a good company, but in some ways transformative for an industry? Well, it's a little bit of a Woody Allen thing. A lot of it is just showing up. So if, if you're at Y Combinator, you meet some of these people and, you know, you sit down next to them at lunch. If they have a good idea, it's kind of the Benny Hill thing. Oh, I'd buy that for a dollar. You, you kind of feel like foolish if you didn't put something in. And, and look, some of these guys like, you know, Anatoly over at Solana and Juan Bennett, they wrote a white paper. And I probably can't understand the whole white paper, but I usually can get through the first page. And, you know, it's one of those things they say like, well, how do you take all these risks? And I'm like, well, look, if, if this idea is right in this paper, what a risk it would be to not invest, right? Like, so... It just depends on how you look at risk. And you could say that's just FOMA. Well, all right, maybe it is a fear of missing out. But if, you know, if the person you're talking to, like, really is sharing what is not just an idea, but really an insight about how the world could be different at like a Star Trek kind of level, it's kind of difficult to not like take a swing at that pitch. And so, I don't know, you can be wrong a hundred times, but when you're dealing with thousand to one returns on successes, you're going to write a lot of checks and you're going to be at a few of the parties. Let's unpack this idea of the difference between an idea and an insight. Now, in your definition of an idea, ideas is an idea for what? An idea for a company, idea for a business model, idea for a business, idea for a product. What do you mean by idea? And then how is that lesser than an insight? Like an idea, we generally think that comes from a head. Like, and, and it could be it could be a really good idea. It might just be a feature. It could be a product. It could be for an idea for a business. It could be for even a platform. But like an insight, like Steve Jobs is like, well, you know, computers could be for people instead of companies. And if that's right, holy smokes, the whole world's going to be different. Or like if you look at uh, Bill Gates, he said, we could write one operating system that could run on all the different computers. Like each of those are insights that if they're true everything changes because the rules of the game are just going to be different. And that's way beyond an idea. And that insight often comes from the gut. It's just a feeling that the world could be very different. And it's not an intellectual type thing. It's more of a temperament. It's a belief that things could operate very differently. And whoever Satoshi is, he clearly had one of those. Bitcoin is not an idea. It's a real insight about the world. And so that you could innovate without having to ask for permission in the realm of money. And like that insight, people are talking, well, it's not very fast. It's not cheap. It's like, yeah, but the insight is you could innovate without having to ask for permission. And that's fundamentally different in the world. It didn't exist in the world of finance, you know, before 2008. And so whenever that bell goes off, I'm looking for a checkbook. Even if I don't have the money, I'm going to borrow to invest in that because, you know, that's a sleigh ride that, you know, you don't want to miss. There's a lot of CEOs or entrepreneurs listening, and I can envision them because they're thinking, is my concept for my company, is it an idea or is it an insight? There's usually some kind of fundamental belief in the world, but if it's an insight, most likely you're not going to be competing on like, oh, we can make this cheaper or we can make it incrementally, usually not for an insight, although it could be transformed if you make it cheaper and suddenly you democratize it and suddenly everyone in the world can get one and before only a very few could. So it's possible, 
But what is it if you want to check yourself? And there's probably other people besides the Jack Dorseys and the Brian Armstrongs and the others who maybe had an insight, but we don't know who they are and their companies never went anywhere, but maybe they had the same belief. So what is it about an insight and what is it about executing an insight for the sort of select few who are able to transform things with it? Well, it's a pretty lonely space. Like when Twitter came out with this notion that you would just, instead of, you just put something out there and anyone could follow it that wanted to follow it. And the original distribution method was text messaging. It went around to Silicon Valley. No venture capitalists in Silicon Valley, none wanted to back Twitter. They're like, there's no proprietary technology there. You're just using text messaging. There's nothing there. Like Eric Schmidt called it like poor man's email later on. And the only folks that got it were like Fred Wilson from Union Square and Bjorn over at Spark, because they saw, oh, this is a media innovation. This isn't a technology innovation. This is a media innovation that freedom of speech is based on the freedom to listen to who you want to listen to. It's not just speaking. Freedom of speech is really about getting to choose who you listen to. And that's a counterfactual kind of way of thinking. And, and so most people just aren't going to get it. And so it's super lonely. So if you have a real insight, you're going to find that most people think an idea is something that people can kind of say, oh, well, that's cheaper, faster, and whatnot. But like Twitter wasn't like cheaper, faster. It wasn't one of those. And like Square, it wasn't really about the swiper. It was about changing the criteria for who could take a payment. And yeah, the technology helped make that cost effective and whatnot. But they opened up to a whole group of people, and so did crypto. So these innovations now, this concept of like like a file coin or like a distributed form of storage, fundamentally different from Amazon. Like you should never have to worry that I lost my computer and therefore I lost all my data. Your data should be attached to your identity. And how would everything you've ever done, every financial transaction, every exchange you've ever had, every credential you've ever earned, just exist out there in the internet attached to your identity. So you never had to worry that I lost my account at such and such, or this government kicked me out, and therefore I lose the bundle of sticks that's attached to my identity. Okay, like when I talk like that, they're probably going to like roll the truck up to take me off to the loony bin. But if you can imagine that world, because that's how Star Trek works, then then you're already living in that alternate reality. And usually that's kind of on the border of being like a, a borderline personality disorder. But you have to be comfortable with that. And, and look, I'm not that person. I generally don't have insights. But like when I see people who do, I don't like run from them. I run to them because I, I don't know, I just seems more fun living around that. And so I, I can't but help but to hang out around places in a Forrest Gump kind of way where you might bump into one of those people. And do you make an effort to do that? Maybe 10 years ago, if we would have talked about kind of Silicon Valley, Everyone says, okay, you have to be in Silicon Valley. You have to be here because you're just going to have these happy accidents, these collisions, and you can't put a price on that. Past 10 years, though, has shifted somewhat. You've seen pockets of entrepreneurs, venture capital, more distributed. VCs aren't making people move to Silicon Valley anymore. The Silicon Valley or San Francisco or Bay Area, because the burn rate's so high, it's going to be expensive. And for the certain type of company, that's not the best. So do you make an effort to put yourself in a place for serendipity to happen? Or how do you approach that? Because it seems like you've been very skilled at that. Well, skilled or just sort of lucky. Like the, I mean, I, I still hang around Silicon Valley, but now I hang around it for the weather. I don't come here to find the entrepreneurs. Now, I can't just sit down on like south of market and within five blocks, just have people come to me or me go to them. Now I am spending time living around the world, just going wherever it's becoming like hot and attractive for, for folks to like be. Like I can't believe the amount of time I spent in Florida and Texas in the last year. That would have been an absolute 
no-no for me like five years ago. And then just elsewhere, all around the world, there is talent everywhere. And so the bulk of our investing and the bulk of my learning and whatnot is, has shifted outside the U.S. And, you know, the world is the oyster now. And so you just go where the people are because you want to meet the people. And even in the world of the Internet, you want to like, you know, go to Rom Romania and find like who's doing like, like whether it's Elrond or something. And these guys are building a different blockchain and like how the hell and why the hell are they doing it in Romania and stuff? And like, you're just going to go those places or like, is Nexo really something different from Celsius and Voyager? Well, you better get on a plane and go to Bulgaria and find out who the hell are these jokers. And, you know, like, so at the end of the day, you have to like go there, look people in the eye, look at their backdrop and figure out, is this real or is it smoke and mirrors? And so the fun thing is, is that talent is everywhere in the world now. It's not like it was five to 10 years ago in Silicon Valley with such a dominance. There's still stuff here, but there's talent everywhere now. And the tools and COVID have just made it clearer that you're not going to find it just hanging out in Silicon Valley. So I like it. It gives me an excuse to go all around the world and meet these people where they are, as opposed to brain draining them all to here. From bike messengers to blockchain, Greg Kidd's journey so far is a testament to the power of democratization in technology. But what happens when your groundbreaking insight is seen as outlandish? Greg believes in embracing this, as it's often the unconventional ideas that change the world. Talent is everywhere, not just in Silicon Valley. His global pursuit of innovation continues, undeterred by the potential crypto winter. Next, we delve into the complex world of regulation and compliance in the tech industry. This notion of the importance of compliance and regulation in helping something go mainstream, which has been a theme in your career, Talk about that and why usually people who are innovators, people with insights or visionaries, the last thing they want to think about is regulation and compliance because it's kind of a buzzkill. You want to do all these things and a lot of people are going to say no to you or, or point out problems or things like that. So what is the role of understanding regulation and compliance in helping have transformative technology and companies? In this world we're going to from sort of Web 2.0 to, to like Web 3.0, the Web 2.0 got pretty far on a world of just like monetizing eyeballs and you know the the facebook's and the twitter's and you have all these eyeballs and you just put a bunch of ads in front of people and that is not a regulated industry and it's kind of a we have the ills that happened with all the fake media and bots and all this type stuff and and people are kind of sick of that and at the same time we see this this model of monetization like whether it was the netflix model or whatnot um, and that was coming along and that has its pluses and minuses too. But if you can flatten the world and have creators get in touch with their viewers, their audiences and whatnot, and you can flatten the world and you don't need to go through a third party, it's pretty amazing. But if you're doing all that with money that's off the grid money, you don't know whether like you're, you're doing work, like merchants can take money directly with crypto or stable coins from someone who's paying. Now that person who's paying might be on the sanctions list and you don't know whether you're like facilitating drug money or 
terrorist financing or whatever other malignant activity. And like on the margin, that can be done at a small scale. But at scale, if you're Walmart and you're taking money from a, a non-custodial wallet without identity, that's not going to look good, right? There are still, despite all this technology, a world of laws and guys with guns and badges. And at scale, doing things without identity, without compliance, is going to be breaking the law. And while you can get away with that at small scale, eventually there's going to be a knock on the door. Just like there's a knock on the door, even for like bored apes, Gary Gessler from the SEC is coming around saying that might be an unregistered security. And I can tell you probably at the day when they were like cooking up bored apes, they weren't worried about like, oh my God, we should be so lucky for people to think that bored apes is a security and that we're going to have the SEC in here like janking our chain. But that day comes. And so you can build and try to slap compliance in after the fact. But like as someone who's like the chief officer of Ripple and you like you come in there and there's already a ledger and people have all this money on it and you have to explain to Treasury that you don't know who those people are. It's not a great visit to Treasury. Like when you get to the big leagues, if you're not doing things by the law and compliantly, it's going to end in tears. That's it. You know, if you want to play in the big leagues, you better start thinking about compliance. And one way to do it is you can bolt it on after or you can build it in from the start. Who are the companies that have navigated this well and they've increased a lot of their value or they've been able to outflank competitors simply because they understood regulation and compliance better than other folks? So this Kingman Brewster was the ambassador to the UK, to the Britain and was the president of Yale. He gave a commencement speech in one of my schools. He said, three lessons for like relationships and business. He says, be bold, be bold, don't be too bold. A good practitioner of that is probably like Sam over at FTX. He's been very aggressive, pushed into a lot of markets with derivatives and other instruments, but he hasn't gotten into as much trouble as like FTX or like Ripple getting into trouble. He's starting to get in trouble now, but like folks that got over the line, you know, maybe, you know, CZ over at Binance, maybe a little bit too far over the line, a lot of money for like Russian version of Silk Road, a lot of North Korean money passing through that network. So you got to pick just how radical to be to gain market share without like being too bold, right? And so Sam has been willing to beat tactical retreats when like Germany says, we don't think you should be doing fractional derivative securities in Germany. He'll be like, okay, but he's pushing it. He's pushing it everywhere. So that's a great example of finding that balance. He set up a separate company for the US from the rest of the world because like the rules are different everywhere else. And he didn't pick it all international or all US, he doubled up, right? So like he's made a bunch of covered bets. He's buying troubled companies. He's doing all these things to like pick through the rubble and pick stuff that's not too toxic but has been innovative or out there in the marketplace and trying to cobble together a future reality. So I, I often point to FTX as the poster child of trying to find that balance between super innovative, super aggressive, but not like flying too close to the sun. And they might make a mistake and stumble, but, but Sam's played it pretty cool so far. Okay, and of course, you're talking about Sam Bankman-Fried, founded FTX, and now that the world's second largest crypto exchange became a prolific billionaire around the way. And if there's this tension between, you're saying, be bold, but not too bold. Be innovative, but be careful with, you know, a little bit, associate with some interesting people, but not too interesting. What is your advice for CEOs and others who, are any of these lessons in technology applicable elsewhere? Or is technology its own beast, its own animals, especially fintech? Or do you think there's some universal lessons that can be applied outside of those sectors to people who are trying to innovate in, in other areas? I think so. Fintech and regtech, a lot of venture capitalists 
stay away from things that have regulatory or legal risk. But if you're really going to tackle the big problems of the world, you better put your like, you better buckle on a helmet and assume that you're going to face legal and regulatory risk as well as technology risk. You better man up or woman up or whatever for both and all of those and go in with your eyes open. So I encourage people to tackle the ambiguity in the, the legal system. Like right now, I'm trying to figure out what people you can, can service like in the world today. Can you service Russians or are Russians banned from doing things? Like, like what is doable and what is a reasonable way of doing it? You need to like go out there and for me anyways, if the, the entrepreneur is just staying away from those risks, I'm like, look, I'm a fireman. I run toward fires, not away from them. So if you're an innovator, I expect you to be tackling these hard problems and coming up with ways to solve them. I don't expect you to avoid risk. I expect you to manage risk. And so whoever's building great risk management systems and stuff, that's who I want to be behind. And look, I realize some of you may be crushed like, and not make it, but we'll learn from those of you who die. I'm sorry you died, but like, you know, you were fighting the good fight and someone else may make it over the finish line. I encourage people to like go out there because otherwise, you know, it's that little song each day, I hope and pray that tomorrow will be the same as today. And so that's the type of insightful entrepreneur I'm looking for. And I like to work with. As an entrepreneur, we think about innovation. That's the driving force. Innovation, very popular to use a word like disruption. Let's disrupt the status quo. If you're sitting across the table from a regulator, they're often, their orientation is not towards that. It could be their orientation, some other words all throughout there would be equitableness, fairness, not playing favorites, not having unfair advantage or unfair competition. Their orientation is that. And those are things that many of us would also say are good things. We want to be fair. We want to be equitable. We would believe in fairness in the world. How do you reconcile that? Or is this battle between innovation, disruption, and sort of fairness and being equitable and also allowing the benefits and the value generated in society to make their way to not just the, maybe the elite few that are starting these companies? The way I try to position it when I'm talking to the, you know, the powers that be, the regulators, et cetera, is I try to say, look, like, I'm not the innovation, the disruption. I'm a messenger. I'm here to tell you that this stuff is happening. It's already happened, right? You just haven't like fully felt it yet. Just like the telecoms used to have like their own app stores. And then the app store came along from Apple and Google and like those phone based, it just basically turned the phone companies into dumb pipes. And if you banks don't want to be turned into like dumb vaults, and if Facebook and Twitter don't want to become just basically dumb social networks where the links on their systems take you to place where everything happens and nothing happens through Facebook and Twitter anymore, then you know you need to wake up and smell the roses because this is like not me doing it to you. I'm just telling you, I've met these folks out there. They're working on this stuff because it's a lot more fun. It's a lot more Star Trek and this change is coming. I don't know if it's going to come this year, five years, 10 years. Um, you can either um, open yourselves up and, and sort of embrace the disruption. Like, again, I hate to mention Sam again from FTX, but like he works on distributed protocols and invests in them, even though he's a centralized exchange himself, he's disrupting himself. So either you like take a chill pill and embrace the disruption and start to do it yourself, or it's just a matter of time before you're going to be on the wrong side of this equation and you're going to get turned into a dumb pipe. And you know, maybe you're just going to like live on SMS text messaging as long as you can. But, you know, there's these other things out there that are just going to like eat that up. Um, I'm just the messenger. So don't killing me is not going to kill the message uh, or stop the progress. And so it's just trying to get those folks 
to realize this is happening anyways. And what they should start to do is work with it as opposed to like just sharpen their knives and try to kill it. And so you see that happening with regulators. They, they reach that tipping point where they actually you know, realize that this is going to be part of the future and they, they really try to get their heads around it. And, and, and it will happen. It just happens at different times in different countries with different regulators. And the U.S. now are still at that point between like, is it too late to kill crypto or we better acknowledge it's going to be here so let's build a framework that lets it live side by side with the banking and card system that we have today as legacy systems. What is your opinion on market downturns, market upturns? If we're talking about crypto, we might be talking about a crypto downturn and a so-called crypto winter now. Do you think, regardless of the space or the industry, does that affect good entrepreneurs or innovators? Should they be paying attention to that? Should they ignore it? What is your advice for other CEOs listening? You know, because there's macroeconomic factors from inflation and the war in Ukraine and any number of things. Does that affect a good entrepreneur or no? The, the downturns always wash out the, the fair weather sailors. So we're, we're going through that period right now. They also create clarity. Like if anybody thinks Facebook's advertising model is just a great model for like the next 10 years, I, yeah, I don't think so. I don't think anybody at Facebook even thinks that now. Like the, the market is now beginning to punish the legacy models and, and realize they're not going to be what they were 10 years ago. It doesn't shine a light yet for this new crop of entrepreneurs. Like what is going to be the next set of successes that come out of this downturn? We saw what came out of the downturn from like, 2018, back when 2018 was happening, FTX and Solana both made it through. And man, they, they have done so much in three years. We don't know what is going to come out of this crop when people are innovating now in a downturn, because it's going to take three to five years to see which of those come through. Just like if the dot-com crashed, you know, the stock price of Amazon and Google was in the tank. But, you know, they made it through and they became huge and amazing companies. So I don't know what's going to come out of this downturn. We're trying, even though we're writing fewer and smaller checks because, you know, our chip stack is down along with everyone else's uh, in the marketplace. Um, but I can tell you, there's a lot of dry powder out there and kids that are graduating from school or have the skills to participate in this. They're not saying like, oh, well, gee, how do I go work for Goldman Sachs or McKinsey? They're working on this stuff. I mean, you have the top talent. I can't but help to think, and history kind of proves this out, that something's going to come from all those people working on these new tools that allow you to innovate without having to ask permission. That can only lead to good things. I don't know how long the winter will last. I don't know how long it will be before the next uptick takes, but this seems like the natural natural order of things. And what is your sense of the, you know, the world of Web 3.0, NFTs, the biggest fad, it kind of goes away. You deal with more of the industrial plumbing of this, of how of this all of this operates, as opposed to all the stuff on the surface. What do you think about the latest, you mentioned bored apes or other things like that? How much of this is fad or what do you pay attention to and what do you recommend other CEOs pay attention to? Well, yeah, I mean, NFTs can look like a fad right now. It goes up, it goes down. Like the current thing that's most, most sales, the biggest sale item on open seas right now is people buying like, domain names, like from, from like unstoppable domains and stuff. And so, but what that tells you is there's something there. And so the question is, do you think in the future that all the registries from homes and cars and diamonds and everything else are all going to be in little silos? Or is there a technology out there that says everything that's owned has essentially a title to it, which is an NFT. And all those NFTs have got to belong to some ultimate beneficial owner, like a person which is represented by a unique name, so there's no confusion. Well, 
I, I don't know how else we get to the future without something like that. Like we've seen glimpses of it, but now the question is how long is it going to take from us to get to that? Eight years ago when Apple launched Apple Pay, people were like, eh, nobody really uses this. This isn't really catching on. It's going to take forever. It's never really going to happen. And then COVID came along and now everybody like pays with like contactless payments. And now everybody's like, holy shit, you know, the future of payments is contactless and it's just going to be sitting in your phone. And so, boom, COVID made all the planets align. And so we don't know which next black swan event is going to basically jumpstart us to a more decentralized reality. Um, but it's hard to believe that it's hard to believe that the current 2.0 dominant companies that are toll bridges and toll gates on everything are going to basically be extracting the monopoly rents they enjoy today, 10 years from now. They're already under incredible regulatory heat. They're under market pressure. Um, the overall market is down. And so that concept that they're going to be able to, you know, to pull that off 10 years from now, like I'm not betting on Facebook being a top 10 market cap company and like nothing against Mark, but like, I don't think you guys are going to be the ones who are going to like nail the metaverse, right? So if you think that's your savior, good luck. I do believe that the future, we're all in on, I won't call it web three, I'll call it just the decentralized web because it goes back to the bike messenger thing. Like when we set up one center, even though the companies were competing with each other for customers and couriers, we found that like putting the back office together and creating a marketplace to let everybody like participate made everybody better off. Customers got better service, couriers made more money, and the companies made more money and grew faster. And so Web 3.0 looks to me like how you're going to get a future Uber or Airbnb that doesn't have to go through a centralized operator. That worked for me like 30 years ago, everywhere ever since. I've always seen places where marketplaces went out over top-down solutions. And Web 3.0 makes everything possible to be a connection between sender and receiver, payer and payor in a flat world. And in that flat world, as long as you have good search engines and you can find each other, like why do you need all these other rent-seeking participants? I'm not like anti-corporation and I'm not anti-government, but you just don't need that stuff. And is that your projection, a feature where everything kind of works seamlessly? You're not thinking about in the episode how all these like interspecies interactions and communications and everyone's talking to each other and everyone's assuming that we're, I don't know, when you're at like the coffee shop on this planet that you can just pay for your whatever alien brew that you're going to get. Is that what you're convinced is this sort of interoperability, this way of connecting all of us together? That doesn't mean like we need our Facebook account and that's what we do to, to do all this. Is that your fundamental thesis and belief? And, and you're not sure how, how we're going to get there, who's going to win, who's going to not, but you know that identity to your company Global ID is going to be important in some fashion, and somehow this is going to all work together, break down all the silos between us. Yeah, I was that saying that English was good enough for Jesus; it ought to be good enough for everyone. You know that kind of thinking that, like, and so it's not true, but but it feels true, right? And there's a movie Demolition Man in which the future, like, when they go out for dinner, it's Taco Bell, and Sylvester Stallone says, "Why are we going to Taco Bell? It sucks." And he's like, "Well, Taco Bell won the food wars, so everything's Taco Bell now." So if you don't want to live in like a world where you think everybody speaks English because Jesus did or Taco Bell won, you want to have a future where everything is interoperable. But there are still standards 
and ease of using it. You don't want to have to like, the future is not like, doesn't look like MetaMask, right? It's got to be something that's easy and accessible. Everybody needs a seat at the table. It would be nice if it's bottom up. So you don't have these big dominant Taco Bells like running the world. And so we can either like wish that it happens or we can actually work on on building it. And so I'm ultimately an optimist and I think it's not only possible, but desirable, but I think it doesn't just happen in and of itself because there's a lot of legacy forces at work. So I do believe people make a difference. These new innovative type companies and business models make a difference. I just want to like see as much of that happen and pull it forward. I don't know how the world works in the future if we don't have interoperability and portability. It just basically looks like a bunch of glug. It looks like the future looks like CompuServe and AOL. And we know there was something better than CompuServe and AOL. We didn't stop at that point in history. Thank God the World Wide Web came along or else we'd still be all on AOL Instant Messenger. And so, you know, but we have to build it. We have to slay the da- the, the dragons of the legacy world. And, you know, and our dragons will subsequently be slayed by, you know, other dragons. And so... We're all part of that creative disruption. And the companies that I was proud to be a part of, you know, years back are now getting disrupted today. And that seems like the natural order of the day. That's what life and generations are about. So that's what gets me out of bed each day. We've dived into the thrilling transition from Web 2.0 to the uncharted territories of Web 3. We've grappled with the critical role of compliance and regulation in this brave new world. As a seasoned tech veteran, Greg issues a bold call to arms for entrepreneurs to face legal and regulatory risks head on and strike a daring balance between innovation and compliance. Greg paints a captivating picture of a future where boundaries are shattered. Everything is interconnected and identity is key. Buckle up as we plunge deeper into the exhilarating future of the tech industry. What is your advice to CEOs that want to tackle this? What else have you seen for people that want to tackle some of these things? But I'd rather not be the stepping stone on the way, (laughs) the person who cracks the code. I'd rather crack the code. What is your advice? Just what you've seen from the Jack Dorsey's, the Brian Armstrong's, the others of the world that you've seen. What should CEOs be thinking about now? I think about your cap table. Like at the end of the day, if you were just desperate to raise money and and you got people that would just as happy be like investing in pantyhose.com if it makes a 10x return is what you're doing, then you're going to have a hard time feeling like your board is, you know, is behind you. And also when you're looking at the people that you've got on your team, you know, are you looking for people that are looking for the next pantyhose.com, you know, or are you looking for folks that want to build the next fill in the blank that actually moves the dial? And so... It's lonely if you're going to be in a space like, you know, and I don't mean to like be fanboys for Steve Jobs or the founder of Tesla, um, but they have a vision that is more Star Trek like than not. And you have to just decide, do you want to be a guy that's like carrying the water for something that's just, oh, it's a bigger market and we're going to bigger, faster, or are you really interested in doing things differently? And it's okay. There's a lot of work out there to be for bigger and faster. Just know what you're comfortable with 
and know what you can sleep with at night and just choose because it's really bad to think you're one, but you're really the other. And, and then you don't fit in your skin. And and if you are going to do one, like whichever one you do, don't take it so personally, right? Because the planets may not be aligned. In addition to doing everything right, you also need to be lucky that it's the right time. There was a right time to be Zoom. It was like in the middle of COVID. Well, maybe the planets aren't so aligned anymore, but to get lucky, you have to do the work first so that when luck happens, you're ready to jump through the hoop in the loop. And I think maybe an underrated quality in CEOs and entrepreneurs is being able to deal with uncertainty and just generally being okay with it, that things don't always have to be certain. There's not always a clear answer and you can just operate on that basis and it's okay. It's okay. And don't take it all so personally. Like it's like open sea. There was like, they were going nowhere. Then the window opened, then the window closed again. So it's like, you know, it's like a sugar high up, down. Don't take it personally. The market's just going to do what it's going to do. Don't take it personally. You've been a CEO yourself. You are a CEO. You've been around a lot of successful CEOs, but let me do the other side, which is the investor question. If someone wants to and looks at your background and says, wow, I'd love to invest in some of those companies in Greg Kidd's portfolio. And I want to try to find a way to navigate. Maybe I'm starting small. I'm just starting out. What is your advice for investing in this and trying to navigate the four real companies and the less than real companies? Well, I would just treat investing as part of your education that just like continued on after school. When you lose all your money on something, just treat that as a lesson learned. The, the really dangerous thing is when you have some initial success and you think you know what you're doing. But as long as you're basically treating everything you do, especially the failures as education, then you're in the Michael Jordan world of like, you know, I fail over and over and over again. That's why I'm successful. It's just you're getting educated. And then one of those educations turns out to be like, it's like whenever I do business in Russia, I say, I always lose all my money, but I have a lot of fun. You know, that's been my history. Eventually, you'll actually learn enough and be lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time. So just pick good failures. That's it. Pick good failures. And then the planets will come into alignment at some time. Whether they do before your life is over or not, I can't tell you. That's just like, Life is cruel in that way, but don't put all your chips on one thing. You can put them all on one thing at one time in your life, but life is very different five years ago, five years from now. Just don't take it personally and be ready to know that the cheese has moved and what you thought was absolutely true yesterday is absolutely wrong today. In this episode, we've journeyed alongside Greg Kidd, the dynamic CEO of Global ID. We've seen him grapple with the intricate balance between centralized and decentralized approaches and how he champions the power of the people and the bottom-up approach. Do you want to be a guy that's carrying the water for something that's just bigger market and we're going to bigger faster? Or are you really interested in doing things differently? And it's okay. There's a lot of work out there to be for bigger and faster. Just know what you're comfortable with and know what you can sleep with at night and just choose. We've delved into a unique talent spotting strategy, investing in transformative insights rather than just ideas. We've seen how he's navigated the ever-changing landscape of regulations and compliance, emphasizing the importance of building it into your business from the start. Through the lens of Greg's experiences, we've gained a deeper understanding of the tech industry's challenges and the innovative solutions that drive it forward. The downturns always wash out the fair weather sailors. They also create clarity. We don't know what is going to come out of this crop when people are innovating now in a downturn because it's going to take three to five years to see which of those come through. This 
story is a testament to the power of resilience, the importance of adaptability, and the transformative potential of forward-thinking leadership. We're left with a richer understanding of the journey of anyone who's not just shaping the future of tech, but also challenging the status quo of industries. And with that, it's case closed. <laughs>